So there we go. All right. We're going to complete this week. We're reading from Set the World on Fire. So we're going to do that. Next week, which is starting tomorrow, I'll be reading from Cap American Captivity Narratives. And we'll be reading from, or we'll be reading the section on Mary Rawlinson. That's how you spell the name, Mary Rawlinson. Captive, she was captured by natives. And, I, you know, the thing about university that is was good, this was decades ago. You, you... You start, you get introduced to things that you would have never thought about. Of course, as a black man, I knew about slavery. And I even knew about indentured servitude. But to think about that um, the Ottomans and Persians were capturing Europeans and Native Americans were capturing white folks here. Never would, just never would have thought about it. I, I, I never would have denied it. But um, I guess my struggle was so has still hasn't really truly been dealt with yet. So it's like, as a black person, you don't always get to think about everybody else's thing, even though they force you to think about everybody else's but your own. Um, for me, because so many people ignore us, I just wouldn't think about it. But we're going to be reading from that, Mary Rollinson. So let's get into it. about my girl okay let's go however women in the PME articulated oh I always forget to do my volume push my volume all the way up push my volume all the way up alright however women in the PME articulated proto-feminism in ways that were noticeably different from the first generation of women activists in the UNIA. While women in the UNIA during the 1920s used the pages of the Negro World, the official Garveyite newspaper, to publicly challenge male chauvinism and patriarchy in print, women in the PME were often silent on these issues. In their writings, surviving primary sources suggested that PME women were less interested in advocating for a black proto-feminist agenda. In writing compared to vocal nationalist women like Amy Jacques Garvey, their actions, however, spoke louder than their words and lack thereof. Despite the absence of overt feminist writings, the women in the PME maintained positions of leadership and authority over both men and women and engaged in activities that sometimes challenged the gender and sexual conventions of their time. Allen's decision to travel alone and live away from home for extended periods of time, particularly as a woman who may have been married, offers a case in point. Similar to black women in the Communist Party during this period, Allen defied traditional expectations about respectable black womanhood. 
I don't know why we keep struggling with this gender thing, but we still are. I think because black men are so devastated. I think that we try to give them something like some position. It's an ego boost for us, but it's time to get over that. We have real problems we need to solve and we'll come along and take our place and make our contributions. It don't matter where we fit within the organization. We just all need to be making contributions. Moreover, back to the reading. Moreover, Alan carefully walked a fine line between leading as a woman and adhering to a black nationalist masculine, masculinist belief and, prim and primacy of black male leadership. When Allen began to organize in Mississippi, she skillfully asserted her leadership in a way that would not appear threatening to male members of the community. Her decision to collaborate with Reverend Green was strategic in this regard. When Green, with Green's endorsement and through his connections, Allen quickly trapped into, I'm sorry, tapped into a widespread network of churchgoers, friends, and relatives located in various parts of the state. During her stay in Mississippi, Allen contacted 39-year-old Black resident Thomas H. Bernard, an associate of Reverend Green, born in Matherville, Mississippi in 1898. Bernard worked as a sharecropper during his teens until 1918, and he was drafted for the U.S. Army at the age of 20. By the time Allen arrived in Mississippi in 1937, Bernard was still residing in Matherville with his wife, Ellie, and his mother, Delia. By his own statement, Bernard's interest in the PME was directly linked to his encounter with Allen during her visits. A few years later, he recalled his motivation for joining the PME and indicating that he found the organization appealing because of its commitment to getting its members back to Africa, their fatherland, and its emphasis on peace at all times. As a World War I veteran, Bernard was especially intrigued by the organization's instructions that members should file conscientious objective forms in order that they would not have to fight for the United States in the event of another war. My fam my mother's family is from Chula, Mississippi, T-C-H-U-L-A, a no light town. If you're driving by the highway and you don't make a left when you soon as you get into town, across the railroad tracks, or right when you're coming from one direction, um, then if you don't go across the railroad, railroad tracks, you'll miss the town, because that's where the town is. There's like a little strip mall, or at least it used to be, and then all the town is behind that. That's Chula, Mississippi. And my grandfather was a sharecropper too. My mother used to tell stories about him and having a smokehouse and all of that. Okay, back to the reading. Bernard's interest in relocating to the fatherland suggests that he imagined himself as part of a di diasporic community of black men and women who would ultimately be reunited in Africa. One of the Allen surviving poem, poems, Freedom's Wind is Blowing, captures these sentiments. We are a nation. We must go free and stay free forevermore. We are 30 million strong. We bid you all adieu. 
After recounting 400 years of the transatlantic slave trade, black enslavement, and racial oppression in the, United, in the U.S. South, Allen called on blacks in the diaspora to take a definitive stance toward racial progress, exemplifying the masculinist undertones associated with black nationalist discourses. Allen's poem appealed directly to black men to lead this way. The black man must now stand alone and let the nation see that he now has a worthy cause and surely must go free. His fatherland is calling him and homeward he must go. He has no envy in his heart, but bid you all adieu. Like many other black nationalists, Allen desired to be reunited with other blacks in the diaspora and envisioned the PME in particular as a vehicle for advancing black immigration and thereby establishing an autonomous black nation state. Um, what was I going to say? I had something in my head while I was reading. Oh. The thing with going back is like, it's not the Africa that you left. And how do you know at that point they want you back? Like, I, I see Africans from here, from the United States, always saying, I'm going back, I'm going back. Oh, and calling it the fatherland, this patriarchy, attitude. Um, we don't have a patriarchy because black men have no power, but the attitude of it, the pretending like we do. I wonder where that comes, I guess that comes from being in proximity of white men who have it. But it's weird to me because I've never seen women, every time I've seen women, but it could be the time I'm growing up, women were in charge of stuff. Even when men were in the house, women still were in charge of things. Keep the house running. And I don't just mean cooking and cleaning. I mean the finances, the bills, all of that stuff. Managing the affairs of the house. Uh, and every black woman I know worked. I don't think I knew one black woman who stayed home and didn't work. I'm trying to think. Yeah, I don't think I know any black woman who stayed home and didn't work. Not one. Um, back to the reading. Importantly, Allen's poem, Freedom's Wind is Blowing, highlights the central tenets of black nationalist thought, black liberation, racial unity, black self-determination, and self-sufficiency. Something blacks don't think about at all these days. These ideas, which were popularized by Marcus Garvey during the 1920s, had already been firmly rooted in black culture since er the early 19th century. While Allen's poem addresses many of the core themes Reflected in Garvey's own poetry, it also underscores the ways in which Allen and other PME activists drew on the ideas of earlier black nationalists. Her reference to Africa as a fatherland as opposed to the motherland is more consistent with 19th century black nationalist writers, including Bishop Henry McNeil Turner and Alexander Crummel. The Episcopalian priest and educator who established the American Negro Academy in 1897. And that's where we're going to leave that.
and I gotta say when hip-hop came out we used to call Africa the motherland we referred to it in the feminine and maybe again and I'm covering the author's name but maybe again that's being raised by women we did that um it just never occurred to us that to call it that. And women give birth, not men. So I guess we figure that land gives birth. Um, or maybe we just got it from the Native Americans that call it the great, the father, the great spirit, and the mother, the earth, the great mother. Maybe we got it from that. I don't know. But the hip hop generation, we call things motherland, African motherland. So that's interesting. I enjoyed reading this until tomorrow. Um, I will see you all. Remember, click the link, subscribe, um, or become a sponsor to support and keep this podcast going. Take care, be safe, and um, because it really is tough out here.